0: Hi everyone, welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. It's been a minute since our last podcast, so I want to update you on Cleo and Christian from our favorite show, 90 Day Fiancé. If this is your first time joining the podcast, Cleo is an autistic transgender woman from the UK, and Christian is her probably bro type boyfriend she met online from Minnesota. Christian is visiting Cleo over the Thanksgiving holidays in her hometown of London. Well, in a nutshell, for this week's update, it's not looking so good for Christian. After a misunderstanding of what defines sex, those of us who lived through the Bill Clinton-Lewinsky sex scandal were introduced on what some people call sexual intercourse and other people don't. I'm not getting into details. Cleo was hurt because she believes Christian is hiding their relationship for the world— by denying they had intercourse. She's assuming Christian is a little bit embarrassed because Cleo is a transgender. Normally, I would defend her and chastise Christian for not being a 1,000% honest. Clearly, something did go on. But, you know, people on 90 Day Fiancé are kind of media sluts. They're all over TV and they're all over Instagram. I don't think Christian is actually trying to hide anything. Nobody's trying to hide anything when they're on 90 Day Fiancé. I mean, listen, they both knew they're going to be on TV. There was a side sub story about something about a producer reporting Christian trying to keep this intercourse quiet. But again, that's tomfoolery. This is 90 Day Fiance. These people are both trying to garner likes and build a little side hustle for themselves. I don't doubt that Cleo was hurt when she found out that Christian may have not been completely forthcoming about their encounter. I'm not denying that. But I don't necessarily think it's because Christian was trying to hide something. I think Christian has a lot of issues. I think he has a lot of insecurities. And I think that he may be a little bit uncomfortable being in a relationship with a transgender woman. This this particular couple, as I might have mentioned, is interesting for this podcast because Cleo is autistic. And we have watched... For weeks, as Cleo has tried to navigate this relationship, as Christian's trying to do, but Cleo has the added kind of layer of complexity of having severe sensory issues. And so some of the things that Christian likes to do really aren't that feasible for Cleo. It's been kind of a ride. So I also want to just say that this doesn't absolve Christian from all wrongdoing. um, That, in fact, Christian probably is a little bit of a dog, while Cleo was in an, at an appointment or work. I'm not sure. Christian got Christian got some time to walk around London on his own. Many of us might visit a museum, hit a restaurant, take a walk around town, get to know the city, maybe go to Buckingham Palace or literally the hundreds of things you can do in London. Go have tea. I mean, you know what I would do now, obviously. But nope, Christian goes to a pub, which of course sounds like fun, but wait for it only to strike up a conversation with a woman trying to just have a nice drink by herself in the same local pub. Christian identifies her as a person from the United States and goes over and has a conversation with her. That's not bad on itself. And I don't think Christian was trying to pick her up. But I do think she just happened to be at the wrong place in the wrong time and got Christian. Of course, it's fine to talk to people at pubs about chat and chat about being Americans in London. However, this is Christian we're talking about. Remember, he did this to a woman on the flight from Minnesota to London and got himself cut off from the alcohol cart because he was being so obnoxious. So the chattiness is fine, but then he ends up inviting this woman to an intimate Thanksgiving dinner he and Cleo are having with her friend Jane. That seems a little bit sketchy. Now, maybe I'm a little rusty on this, but I don't think there's really anything wrong with chatting someone up at a bar, although Christian is generally messy. But inviting her to Thanksgiving dinner, uh, nope. I think Christian has some social issues of his own. But regardless, this even hurt Cleo's feelings. I might not be completely aware of the etiquette when you're visiting your autistic transgender girlfriend in another country when you've only spoken online for the past several months. Certainly, Emily Post stays silent on this. But I think inviting a complete stranger over to Thanksgiving dinner is a little bit breaking with tradition. I think I mentioned this before, but Cleo and Christian are actually one of the couple's viewers like and are rooting for. Maybe not together so much, but separately. There are others that are just a giant dumpster fire. Again, if one person watches this show, can be better educated about autism, I think it's a success. But I also need know people fast forward their storyline because it's just not as sizzling as someone like Gino and Jasmine. So, okay, on to research. And there's a huge research study I want to tell you about this week. In case you hadn't seen it already, a company called Early Tech Diagnosis or Early Tech DX in collaboration with the Marcus Autism Center published two papers on a new tool called Early Point. This Early Point is a device that has been developed, of course, in collaboration with the Marcus Autism Center and other research uh, researchers across the US, including the University of Washington. Cincinnati Children's Hospital, University of California, San Francisco, Rush University, and a couple others. For years, they have been taking the lessons learned about eye tracking in people, and especially infants and toddlers with autism, and building a theoretical framework for building a tool to promote earlier diagnosis and intervention. As I've rambled on and on over again, this is an issue. The average age of diagnosis still hovers around four to five years of age in the U.S., but with a good clinical evaluation, it can actually be diagnosed at 18 months. This delay is caused by a lot of things, not just one thing, but one of them is the lack of trained clinicians and the long waiting list for pediatricians to refer their families if they fail the MCHAT. Also, there are some racial and ethnic biases in diagnosis, or at least there used to be. Everybody's still at the age four or five. Again, not the only thing But it has been documented as one thing is these longer waiting lists. I'm not blaming anybody. Pediatricians are heroes. They have like 10 minutes to, one, evaluate development, two, address concerns, three, monitor growth and overall health, four, educate parents and answer questions, five, identify the possible cases of abuse, six, wrangle with insurance providers, and seven, give vaccines. Oh, and everything... The other things that pediatricians need to do. And that's in 10, maybe 15 minutes. Well a recent study has shown that they in fact can be trained to administer and interpret an autism evaluation, what pediatrician has the time or the bandwidth? Anyway, wouldn't it be great if there was a device that some could use as some sort of biological marker or biomarker to identify autism earlier? It would be objective. It wouldn't it wouldn't be able to tell if you're black or Hispanic or white. Something that uses data and it takes just a few minutes to administer and provides a comprehensive report to the doctor and the families. I know there are a lot of these swirling around and I've discussed a few. They've involved environmental exposures, genetics, brain imaging, and even previous studies on eye tracking. This research comes from the dozens and dozens of scientists who have made contributions to the field of eye tracking. They weren't all just involved in this study, and just like any other scientific discovery, it didn't happen by a small group of researchers. It has taken 20-plus years not just to develop this device or test the device, but look at the field of eye tracking and something called visual social attention that has been studied and characterized and looked at in different contexts, environments, and options, and published and reviewed all on the potential of eye-tracking measures to be taken into the community to be used to help with earlier diagnosis. These include researchers at Duke University, at Yale, at the University of Washington, at UCLA, internationally in China and the United Kingdom and even South America, These researchers have all contributed to the wide body of knowledge that links social visual attention as an eye biomarker of autism. And social visual attention is what eye tracking measures, and I'll talk about it in a minute. I want to put a shout out to all of the researchers who have spent chunks of their careers looking at eye tracking as a measure of social visual attention to understand children and toddlers and even adults with autism. All of those early studies, all of the later studies, all of the studies that use devices, they all helped make this product happen. And some of the eye tracking tools will be used not just for a diagnosis, but also to group people into different categories for research or to even measure response in a treatment study so it's more objective. This is not the penultimate study on visual social attention. This is just one, but it happens to be tied to a product that can be disseminated in the community. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with eye tracking, this is what it is kind of like. It is a computer that tracks the eye movements and where the eye movements go through a device that's non-invasive. It's magic. Nothing attaches to your eyeballs or your eyelids. It uses kind of like a small light nobody can see and it tags the eyes of the person that it's interested in That gets electronically tagged. Again, there's no clips or anything like that on the eye. Nobody can see anything, nobody can feel anything. It's totally safe. But then this device layered on top of another computer can can track on a screen where the eyes are moving. The computer then maps that onto the social scene a person is viewing. So scientists have been using eye tracking for a while to measure attentional processes in people with autism. It tracks how long people are looking at different parts of a scene, and it tracks how many times they go back and forth from particular parts of a scene. There's been a lot of backlash from the community on this research. Twitter is full of comments that this area of research is, quote, ableist, presumably because it has been identified as a switch from autistic people looking at faces to more looking at objects. It also indicates the biological mechanism by which some of these visual social attention deficits can occur. It's also been labeled as useless because there was a doubt that it would develop into anything more than an idea and was thought to be just something that researchers wanted to do to amuse themselves. This is not the case at all. This was a good idea and because of eye tracking, scientists, in addition to developing a tool, are better able to understand some of the social deficits and social interaction challenges in people with autism. Researchers learned that there are differences in the way that children with autism interact in their social environment. And again, it's driven by biology. Looking at different things as early as birth helps facilitate survival, right? Babies need to pay attention to biological motion and faces, the face of their mother and their face of their caregiver. Early in development, infants have a predisposition to look at certain things in their environment and make associations with those things in their environment. But kids with autism don't do this as well, and this disruption in early development and autism perpetuates and in fact continues and even recapitulates itself so that people with autism may even get more autistic as time goes on because they're not interacting with their full environment. The theory of social attention in infancy has driven early intervention research and as long as 10 years ago, researchers were identifying the very early differences in visual social attention. In fact, people with autism tend to look more at objects than faces. The tests involve having infants look at a social scene of social interaction. Different video scenes are presented with either or both or both either or both objects either still or moving or faces either familiar or unfamiliar. This can be done in a video that someone will record themselves or a movie scene which has been commonly used that one of them is a mother making a sandwich. This has been a this has been a video clip that has been used in many many different studies. You have a woman making a sandwich and making facial expressions. As time goes on, is the baby or the child looking more at the mother or looking at the sandwich? So the goal has been not to just use the social engagement score to predict a diagnosis, but also to assess things like verbal and nonverbal ability. How? Well, you present different visual scenes. For example, measurement of social engagement quantifies how a child engages with both social and non-social cues, faces and objects, or two people talking while in naturalistic environmental contexts. It's not just in a clinic, it's different video scenes of kids playing on the playground, things like that. There could also be videos of kids playing with toys of interest, colors, contact cues and objects and background elements not relevant to the social context. So based on this, scientists know what non-autistic kids look at and can provide a score. Now, this is a reference score that measures the ability to visualize comparisons revealing individual strengths, vulnerabilities, and opportunities for skill building. And they can be delivered in a standardized way. So data collection is automated and objective. You give the same videos to the same people in the same environment. But Can it provide an accurate diagnosis so that toddlers can enter early intervention earlier and get the support they need? Can a few of these early scans help predict later strengths and vulnerabilities for future planning? Well, this study sought to answer some of those questions. And by the way, I'm adding some images in the podcast summary that might help explain the process of this eye tracking to measure visual social attention a little bit more. So this group applied for and received FDA permission to deploy this device to different specialty centers across the U.S. and train the staff to administer the test and then followed up with clinical evaluations using gold standard measures to verify and quantify the diagnosis. It was important that the FDA have a look at this because the end goal is to deploy it across the United States and possibly the world. They published these findings last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and I'm grateful that many media outlets picked it up. So what did they find? Well, it's pretty exciting. First, the score on what Early Point does is translates into a diagnostic probability. Now, this is what goes on with a behavioral diagnosis. Based on the scores of behavioral tests, which take many, many hours, the clinician has to weigh the probability that they have an autism diagnosis. Clinicians do this all the time, even with the kids that aren't obviously autistic or not autistic. Diagnostic uncertainty using traditional behavioral tests have been documented in about 30% of cases. And beyond a diagnosis, are there things like cognitive and language abilities that the early point measure can index for for a better description of autism than just a yes or no? Again, this device is not meant to circumvent the in-person face-to-face specialty care that a clinician can provide. It's meant to provide an alternative to families or even an early alternative to families that would normally not get that diagnosis for whatever reason for years after they have this opportunity in this early point device. So they collect the data across the site and when they did two diagnostic studies, which means there was a sample study and a replication studies to make sure the original results weren't a fluke, They calculated different measures to determine how similar the scores were to standard behavioral measures, which are considered the gold standard. So let's start with that. Let's start with how well it matched with expert clinician observations and parent reports, which can take hours, if not days. Again, this is not to dismiss the role of the clinician because they're so important. But wait times are years, not weeks to see them. Also, a lot of communities don't have access, nor will their insurance pay for time with these clinicians. So when they developed the eye-tracking visual social engagement measure, aka early point to six specialty centers, they had them do a clinician evaluation plus the early point. They found that it was able to accurately classify autism versus no autism in children, 70, 1% sensitivity and 81% specificity with a positive predictive value of 76.2. Okay, what do those numbers mean? 71% sensitivity means 71% of the time they were able to pick up autism cases. Specificity means 80% of the time it labeled someone with autism correctly. Positive predictive value means that 76 times out of 100, it picked up autism cases or matched with the clinical evaluation. Now, remember that 76% also includes those iffy autism cases. There's a lot of them out there. That 30%, remember 30% of cases, they, the, even the clinician wasn't really, really sure of. So if the analysis removed those iffy cases that the clinician identified as being eh, not quite sure, which does happen, the sensitivity increased to 78%, and the specificity increased to 85% with a positive predictive value of 81.2. So those scores improved if you took out the iffy cases. Results of the eye tracking tests were also correlated with clinical assessments of the child's level of autism-related behaviors and verbal and cognitive abilities, which is really important. It doesn't just give you a yes or no, it explains why some kids have verbal and, and cognitive problems, and specific autism-related behaviors. Now, if you want a copy of the paper, email me, because there's a lot of numbers there. I know I was throwing out 76, 81, 71, 85. But the point is not for you guys to remember the number. The story behind this is the importance of research in the long haul. This research started 20-plus years ago, and nobody knew where it was going to go. People were looking at it from a purely scientific, is there some sort of biological marker? And how do kids with autism, how do they pay attention to the world around them? How do they integrate that information into cues that help them make predictions about the world? It can be done in young kids at a time which they should be diagnosed at about 16 to 30 months of age. It had like a 95% enrollment rate, so like 95% of the people who enrolled for the study did the tracking measure, so it's not exactly an onerous procedure. It's good at measuring things like cognitive ability and language ability. The end goal was this. To enable earlier and more effective diagnosis, to monitor behaviors that may exacerbate or ameliorate disability... And ultimately, personalize interventions on the basis of individual needs. So, if you guys are as excited about this as I am, and have seen the fact that this is really based in science, right? This isn't something that was just a fluke. This is something twenty years ago scientists were showing or seeing some promise in. The public didn't always see the see; wasn't always enthusiastic. But I hope you're enthusiastic about this end result, which means that there can be now that it's been evaluated and gone through the rigmarole of the FDA, deployed to different sites across the United States to make getting an autism diagnosis easier and faster. If you're interested in what centers offer this this equipment right now, and remember it's still in a research phase, please email me. I will try and put you in touch with whoever I can find, If you have a young child that desperately needs a diagnosis, it's not available everywhere yet, but will help. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you next week.